How often do you hear about mic drop innovations in radial to peripheral equipment? Here's one. The Sublime Radio Access Platform from Sermotics offers 250-centimeter rapid exchange balloon catheters. That's long enough to reach from the wrist to and through the pedal loop. And their unmatched deliverability ensures they get there. Ready for another mic drop? Sublime guide sheaths are available in lengths up to 150 centimeters in both six and five French platforms. The Sublime portfolio even includes high-performance support catheters in lengths up to 200 centimeters. Getting the picture? The Sublime radio access platform is engineered to make wrist-to-foot access not only possible, but practical. Don't just think radio to peripheral, think wrist-to-foot with the Sublime radio access platform. Visit sublimeradio.com to learn more. This week on the Back Table Podcast. And one thing I would recommend for at least the young IRs, when I started my practice or joined the practice I'm in now, typically it wasn't standard for us. You know, we would go see some of our patients, but not all of our patients. Mm-hmm. So my first year rounding on patients, a lot of the physicians were like, you know, your IR, what are you doing on rounds when I would round in the different ICUs? And then after about six months, it sort of got to be where that was expected. And then, you know, 12 months, a lot of the guys that I would see up in the ICU would then call me with problems directly just because we were constantly seeing each other rounding. And so it, it, for me, starting out in the IR practice, it, it made it to where I was approachable to other providers and it made us more open for referrals, I think, moving forward to sort of grow the practice. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Backtable Podcast. If you're a new listener, welcome. For all of our regular listeners, welcome back and thank you for listening. You can find all previous episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or our website, which is backtable.com. Very easy to remember. Subscribe to the show, leave us a review, or reach out to us on social media. I'm Chris Beck. I'll be your host today. I'm a private practice interventional radiologist based out of New Orleans, Louisiana. Today, we have another private practice interventional radiologist who's joining us, uh, Dr. Ryan Trojan. Ryan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, man. So originally, you kind of came under our radar when we saw your YouTube video about E&M coding. So the topic today is E&M coding. Ryan, before we launch into the topic, will you tell everyone... Um, kind of your, uh, what your practice looks like and how, like why even you like made the E&M video to begin with? So I practice at a hospital called Integris Baptist in Oklahoma City, was in a uh, private practice group and we separated from the private practice group, the IR section did. And one of the things when we separated was we wanted to focus on E&M, whether that be inpatient or outpatient as added sources of work RVE revenue, and just to provide better clinical care. So my current practice, uh, I've been employed by the hospital as a 100% IR group for about two years now. We have five IRs, two neuro IRs, and five IRPAs. Uh, Holy shit, that's a, pretty, that's a pretty big practice. Um, yeah, and it's, yeah, what's the hospital system like? How big? So it's a pretty big hospital system. It's, it's interesting. It's a nonprofit private hospital but we're the transplant center for the state of Oklahoma. So we do all ECMO and with that comes, you know, a host of bleeds, uh, all the oncological work. Mm -hmm. So the main hospital, it's a license for 600 plus beds, but they 
usually operate around 500 to 515. And then we have five other hospitals that feed in that don't have reliable IR practices. So that's probably an additional 500 beds. And some of the stuff, so we do a lot of transplant work. We're a comprehensive stroke center in the IR department. We do the majority of the stroke uh, interventions. And so keeps us pretty busy. How many years out uh, from fellowship are you? I am three years out. Three years out? Okay. All right. So private practice IR, employee base, like work for the hospital. And Correct. when you when you made the jump from, you know, your old practice to this practice, do you look back? Like what's it what's it like? Good, bad, ugly? Oh, it's great. So okay. I tell you, I uh my first year out being in a diagnostic group, I, I think it's somewhat like a dysfunctional marriage in that uh, you know, we were just together kind of because we had kids, you know, couldn't okay. really separate. But yeah, it was, you know, a lot of, a lot of infighting. Um, and as a, as a marriage, we were headed in different directions. Mm -hmm. So I would say it's one of the best decisions that I think we've made as a practice. And for my own personal life, I can tell you, I am significantly ha happier working for the hospital because all I do is IR. I don't have to worry about, you know, looking at a stack, reading a diagnostic study. So for anybody that's thinking about it, I would say just cut the cord and do it. But it can be sticky in the state of Oklahoma, the non-compete laws are non-existent. So it's a lot easier to separate from gotcha. a group. I know other places it's a little bit more difficult. Sure. All right. So getting into ENM coding, what is what does ENM stand for? Evaluation and management. I mean, it's kind of a, a softball question, but wh why should anyone care? Like, I mean, couldn't you just go through, just do a ton of 100% IR and then just skip all the ENM coding? Like what, what are the actual pros like for, for some of the naysayers out there? So I think the first pro is, you know, IR is moving more clinical. And so as we move more clinical, this is a huge piece. I think for practices that perform ENM, it's just better clinical care for the patients and it's a better patient experience. So if you come see me, I'm going to see you in consult, depending on the procedure. Uh, and then I'm going to see you for the procedure. And then any day you're in the hospital, I'm going to come in and see you and drop a note. And so number one, I think it's better patient care. Number two, it's documentation. I think, especially if you're on call on the weekends and you, there's a, a really sick patient and you decide not to intervene, then those are patients I will go see, put a consult note in so it's in the record as to why I didn't intervene. So many times, interventional radiologists don't go see the patients and then stuff gets put in the chart that may not be accurate. The third thing, obvious, uh, would be increased work RV revenue. So when you look at a vascular surgeon, for example, they get about 20% of their work RV revenue from ENM coding. I feel like as interventional radiologists, we can do the same. I think you can have a tw 10 to 20% boost in your work RV revenue if you perform ENM coding. So that's, that was like on your, so for those of you uh, listening, uh, also know that we will link to Ryan's uh, YouTube lecture. That's like the first thing that how he came onto our radar. Um, and so if you guys are interested, please listen to it. It'll be in the show notes. Um, but I noticed in the lecture, you said that vascular surgery, it's like 20% E&M. Um, now you haven't hit the 20% mark. Is that like the goal? Is that like a reasonable goal for interventional radiologists? Or like, where do you think people should stand in terms of like how much of their E&M billing should be, or I'm sorry, how much of their billing coding should be E&M versus SNI or, you know, procedure codes? I think 10 to 20% is yeah. a reasonable goal. So I hit my first year out. 13%, but 90 plus percent of that was inpatient. Mm -hmm. 
uh, still working on getting a, a big outpatient clinic set up. Uh, COVID kind of derailed our plans for clinic space. And since we work for the hospital, um, if the hospital says no, as far as funding, we kind of have to wait. But I, I do think 10% is reasonable for most private practice radiologists if you just do inpatient E&M work, not even okay. doing an outpatient clinic. All right. That's fair. That's fair. Um, one of the things that I think like to bring some awareness and really hit home for people like, you know, on the fence, whether E&M is like worth it or not. Can you talk, kind of talk about um, some relative work RVUs in terms from like, you know, I don't know, you can, you can pick whatever E&M code you want, but like some billet, some E&M codes versus some procedure codes and like compare the two, like, you know, a tips is, you know, 10 work RVUs, which I'm making up that number and, and, you know, a level four visit is worth how many? Like, do you have any like comparisons off the top? Yeah. So a simple one, and we'll talk about this as far as inpatient work goes, you have uh, what I call it inpatient hospital day one, which is 99222. It's a level two. And then you've got subsequent hospital days, which is 99232. So those are just like, those are just like progress notes. Like, yeah, the, the yeah, ones are progress yeah, notes. And the, and the hospital day one, it's 2.61 work RVUs. That's the exact same as a, a biliary drain change. And compared to other procedures like a NEF tube is six, a biliary drain placement is 7.6. So for people who say, I don't think E&M is worth it, um, you know, if you look at some of the data, let's say an average IR only physician does 8,500 work RVUs a year, mm -hmm. they take 12 weeks of vacation and that ends up being 42.5 work RVUs per day, you know, if you work five day weeks. Sure. So if you can do 10 to 15 work RVUs, just E&M, uh, you know, then the rest of it's just procedural stuff. And so I think everybody says work RVUs aren't worth it, but it's one of those things, if you just do it every day, then it's worth it. And once you start doing the inpatient work RVUs, I've always rounded on my patients since I've been in practice which isn't that long, three years, but I can't imagine not rounding on my inpatients. I just, I can't see a day where, you know, where I would do that, so. Right, that's just not your practice. Um, I, I guess one of the things that I, I try and stress to, to interventional radiologists is that a lot of times they're, like in people's practice, you're already doing the work. Like most of us will see patients, inpatient consults, go up to the floor, see patients. Um, and a lot of us round on our patients after procedures the only thing like that, the only difference maker here is sometimes just the documentation and then capturing that, that billing code. And so has that resonated with some of your, your other IR partners in terms of like, they're doing the work. You just have to emphasize to them, man, all you got to do is just drop the note, drop the code. That's correct. And, and in order to do that, I think you first have to demystify a lot of sort of misinformation that's out there. And for IR there are no 90 day globals. There's 10 day globals for five things, kyphoplasty, uh, any ablation, gastric access, venous access, and cholecystostomy tubes. Every other procedure you can build post-operative day one for a progress note. And so, so once, hold, hold, let me, let me stop you only because I think that some people might gloss over this. So like what we're talking about is global beer, uh, global billing periods and will you just like kind of like take one step back and tell people like what is a global billing period and then then follow up and just tell everyone why you really don't need to sweat it that much except for a couple circumstances. Yeah. So global uh, billing period is the 
number of days after a procedure where you cannot bill for inpatient progress notes. So let's say I do a cryoblation on a kidney. I'll see that patient the next day in the hospital. You know, I can't bill for that because it's within the 10 day global. It's all bundled. The reason interventional radiology doesn't have any global periods is they dropped the payment for most of our procedures uh, a couple of years ago. And then in order to do that, they got rid of the globals. So I think you'll see in the future, they will go after most of the surgical codes and then to appease the surgical societies, they'll drop the globals. So my, my twin brother's a urologist. You know, if, if you take a 90 day global surgery for him and you make it a zero day global, but you drop the overall RBU payment, right? you know, he'll make up for it on the back end by billing for those progress notes. Okay. So again, like despite those five procedures, which we, you know, kyphoplasty, gastric access, venous access, cholecystostomy, two placement ablations, you can bill for, for follow-up. Now in my practice, no matter what the procedure is, even if it's kyphoplasty, it's in the 10 day global, I'll still round on those patients and the notes look the exact same. It's just, that's what I'm not going to get uh, paid for. And, and back to your original question, as far as implementation for my older partners, I think that templates are very, very helpful. Sure. Okay. So I think we, we've tackled the, the global uh, billing period. And, and like you said, like demystified it in a way. And, and if I hear you correctly, one, we don't, we don't really have to worry about the 90 day global unless maybe you're doing like carotid endarterectomies, right? Correct. Carotid yeah. stents or endarterectomy, which most right. IRs aren't doing. Sure. And then for the 10 day global, which is a 10 day period in which you cannot bill after the procedure. So like if you did uh, gastrostomy, uh, I think you said kyphoplasty, cholecystostomy tubes, and then any kind of liver ablations or any kind of ablation period, then there, that falls under a 10 day global bill or 10 day billing, uh, 10 day global billing where for the next 10 days you can't bill, but everything else. So like, even though it's weird, cholecystostomy is on there, but biliary drains okay, right? Correct, because they dropped the payment for biliary drains. Yes. Not so that, like, to me. Right. So that's kind of the historical perspective is like they dropped our SNI code and then they they freed us up on the back end. So now, you know, as a profession, we, that's what we have to take advantage of, right? Correct. Okay. Will you talk a little bit about um, your templates? Um, like, I guess, tell the audience like what electronic medical record that you're using and then how you use templates uh, to your advantage and to kind of make this process easier and less less painful. So I use Epic and it's pretty simple. We'll try to provide copies of the templates, but the easiest thing I've found, there's a way to go to auto text editor and you can look at other people's templates. I stole all my templates from urologists and just changed a few things to it. And then it was good to go. And it auto imports everything. It brings in vitals, labs, eyes and O's. I have a separate section that covers drain output and any imaging reports. So every day I have very minimal to input into the, into the note. And once an Epic, once you make a good note, it takes literally 30 seconds just to copy and paste it forward, change one or two sentences and you're good to go. Absolutely. Whenever you uh, put in the note, oh, and one thing that maybe the audience missed is that we're going to try and get Ryan's templates. If you would, you'll you'll share some of those templates with us. And so for Epic yes. users out there, we'll we'll have access to Ryan's templates and maybe you can borrow, modify them, make them a little bit better or, or whatever, but um, we'll try and include those in the show notes. And if not in the show notes, we'll link to them uh, wherever we can get them uh, on the website. But after you put in your note, and this may be specific to different electronic medical records, 
then what? Like, do you just have someone who combs through all your notes or do you actually drop the charge that like prompts a biller? Like how, do, how does the next step work? So for both SNI coding and for EM coding, we do our, our own billing. So in Epic, when it pops up, I have a box of different codes to choose from. And so then I just pick the code. Um, oh, okay. And then that drops to a queue for a biller to approve it. Okay. And is it uh, for some of your other partners who aren't as familiar with the codes or is everyone so familiar that they, they know which ones to code for? Or is there ever like a time where, like, does anyone give you some assistance in this? Initially, when we transferred over to the hospital, we had access to our hospital-based E&M billers. Mm -hmm. But now after two months, nobody has really any questions as to what to bill because it's pretty straightforward mm -hmm. on the three or four codes that we use. Okay, nice. One of the other things I wanted to demystify before we started talking about like the components of of billing was uh, a, a modifier 25 or dash 25. Will you, one, elaborate for the uninitiated exactly what that is and then also what you do about it? So modifier 25 is a modifier you append to a service if you want to get paid for E&M the same day that you do the procedure. So the same day you do the minor surgery. And it's pretty simple. The actual terminology is uh, it's used to facilitate billing of E&M services on the day of the procedure and must be significant and separately identifiable. So when I'm doing a, let's say I have a septic nephrostomy tube, mm -hmm. I go see that patient on the, in the ICU. I'll dictate in my note the significance of why the patient was seen on the floor was to evaluate could they tolerate moderate sedation? Do we need anesthesia? And I'll go through a, a list of the things I'm looking at. And then when they come down to the department, I'll put my normal pre-procedure note. So okay. by documenting the sig significance of why I've gone up there, I hit that one. And then by having a separate pre-procedure note, then there's two different notes. So it's obviously separate from what I would normally do for a nephrostomy tube placement. Okay. And the, the reason we're talking about this modifier 25 is this, if you were just to put in a regular note, like say you decided not to see the patient in the ICU, but you were going to just see them right in the department before they rolled into the cath lab, that's kind of a red flag where, or not a red flag, but that's just a situation in which you can't bill for a separate history and physical apart from your procedure, right? Correct. And you hit on a good point in that the first sentence of the note will say patient was seen and evaluated in the ICU. Okay. So they know it's separate from the IR department. Okay. I know there's this there's one situation that's a, a little bit peculiar with the modifier 25 that you just can't see the patients in your department. You have to be on the floor and you, that has to be clear in the note. Are there any other uh, sticky little points like that that may uh, prohibit or restrict you from uh, capturing like a HMP code or a, a ENM code uh, before the procedure on a same day procedure? So I try to use this code on critically ill patients, strokes, Septic patients, you know, I think it will get sticky if you try to do it on everybody, obviously, because there's no indication. But I think if you see the patients separate from your department, it'll go through. I talked to my billers last week. One of the things that we, that I constantly hear from the older generation is you don't get paid for E&M work, which is absolutely not true. So my payment rate's about 99% for E&M wow. work. And the uh, modifier 25 stuff, the way I document it, the billers say it all goes through. So, you know, I think again, another 
piece of disinformation when it comes to E&M work. Yeah, no, that's important. Um, can you give some procedures that maybe some good examples of procedures where you do go see the patient ahead of time, like on a same day procedure, like you said, uh, like a septic nephrostomy tube, if I had to extrapolate probably a cholecystostomy tube, but maybe something that would be like out of bounds would be like a paracentesis or central venous access, something like that. Correct. So anybody, the way I look at it is if someone called me at one in the morning to do this on call, mm -hmm. th then th that kind of fits the bill, right? Strokes, people are bleeding to death, yeah, stuff of that nature. But yeah, we don't typically do any routine stuff, you know, like ports or lines. We're currently not seeing those patients. Okay. Gotcha. So the, the billing components, um, and from watching your video, I know that the medical decision-making is the most important part. And so will you talk about the different components that go into medical decision-making and then, um, how that plays into driving everything else about the E&M code. So the three components of calculating complexity of medical decision-making are problem points, data points, and risk. And there are four levels, straightforward, low complexity, moderate complexity, and high complexity. So from an IR perspective, when we're figuring out and calculating complexity medical decision-making, it's either going to be high complexity or moderate complexity. It's unusual to get a straightforward complex medical or complexity medical decision-making or low complexity. You have to remember these charts and tools were designed for family medicine clinics. And as an interventional radiologist, we just deal with a much sicker patient population. So most of the stuff that I do is moderate complexity. Okay. So the, basically once you get through all the components of the medical decision-making, the three or the, I'm sorry, the four levels that you can end up at are straightforward, low, moderate, and high. And basically, you know, to make everything simple for everyone, you can throw away straightforward and low. That's just not the arena in which we work. E everything's going to be moderate or high. So we're just trying to figure out where we end up in moderate and high. Um, all right, so so now I think you said the three components that lead us to whether or not we're going to be at moderate or high are, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, the number of treatment options, that's number one, uh, the amount of the data, that's two, and the risk category, right? So the first one will be like problem points. Okay. And set so of like, treatment options. Okay, and, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and management options is, is one of the categories in risk. Gotcha. Uh, so... And you only need two of the three. So you would only need, for example, on moderate, if you had problem points and data points, but the risk wasn't there, you would still qualify for moderate complexity because it's two out of three. Okay. And, and when we look, look at the moderate, moderate complexity for medical decision-making, so for problem points, it's very simple for interventional radiology to hit three problem points. So any past medical history counts. So if you have a patient with acute polynephritis, and they have diabetes, hypertension, and those are two problem points, hypertension, diabetes. And then obviously you've got an established problem, which is worsening, which is acute polynephritis. That's at least two, um, if not three, because it's a new problem. So it's very easy to get to the three problem points because all of our patients have multiple, multiple past medical history problems. And to, to plug into the templated notes on Epic, all this stuff feeds in on your template. 
for yeah. past medical. So it's, they're easy points to get. Yeah. I will say that like having been uh, like as an Epic user, I mean, whenever all that stuff auto populates, I mean, the idea to hit the number three is so easy because like, I mean, like people's lists now are like 12. I mean, like if you've been yeah. in the hospital for any amount of time, there's like 15 things there. So it's like you hit it right off the bat. All right. Um, and so that's, that's the number of diagnoses. Um, and then the next category is, is what? Uh, it's data. data. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Now let's do that one. <clears throat> the data reviewed, it got overhauled in the 2021 changes, which we'll go over in the future. But it's, again, you only need three points. So if you review labs, that's a point. If you review or order a radiology exam, that's a point. If you talk to another physician, that's a point. And one thing that is clutch for interventional radiology is if you do independent review of imaging, that's two points. So if I'm gonna, if I have a patient that I do a tips on, for example, I see them the next day and they got a chest X-ray, I'll just say, I independently review the chest X-ray. It, you know, there's no findings of pulmonary hypertension, small right pearl effusion. That's an automatic two points on the data. And since my Epic note auto-populated labs, I get points for the labs. So yeah. I've already medically hit my moderate, com you know, moderate complexity. Yeah. And, and I, I think like as interventional radiologists, it's pretty, uh, imaging rich. And so, like you said, two points for the imaging review, one point for the data review, and then you've already got three points. So now you're at moderate, um, that moderate category in terms of the amount or complexity of data reviewed. Okay. All right. So just to back up, so we've done the number of, of diagnoses, and then we just did the amount or complexity of the data reviewed. And then the next category is what? Risk. Okay. Let's talk about risk. Risk is complicated in the fact that within the risk category are three different categories. So within the risk category, you have presenting problem, diagnoses, uh, diagnostic procedures ordered and management options. Mm -hmm. And so from an IR perspective, I look at it as either presenting problems or management options. And in the risk section, you just need one of these categories to hit. So I don't need two, two out of the three. I just need one out of the three. So for moderate complexity, if you have more than two stable chronic illnesses, that's moderate complexity. Okay. If you have an acute complicated injury, which is most of our patients, that's moderate complexity. Also, uh, if they're a minor surgery with risk factors, then that's moderate complexity. So anything with a 10 day global is a minor surgery. Anything with a 90 day global is considered a major surgery. So just a little nomenclature there. Oh, so that, that's a good question. So if you have something like say nephrostomy tube, that's, that's not in the, that global, that 10 day global period, is that not considered a minor surgery? Like that's, that doesn't fit that bill. So a nephrostomy tube would not be considered a minor surgery because it's, okay. well, it would, it would be considered a minor surgery. Minor surgeries are correct myself. It's zero and 10 day globals. Oh, okay. All right. All right. So, so almost everyone. So if we're looking at the, the risk category, there's, there's, Within there, there's three subsets. Like you said, the presenting problems, the uh, diagnostic procedures ordered, and management options, right? It, you're right. And the management option, that comes into play for the consult or the same day note. And then everything after that is just going to kick back to the problems because okay. those will ride that patient throughout the, the hospital stay. Gotcha. Um, and then... This is just something I see a lot of people doing with their epic notes, like in terms of documentation. Um, do you say like it like at some point you have to document that like you have either chronic problems or stable problems or acute illnesses, what whatever? 
I see a lot of people saying patient is high risk, high complexity, or moderate risk, moderate complexity for these reasons. Is that like a little uh, blurb that you have in, in your note to like state like high complexity or not? I typically won't won't state that if okay. it's if I'm seeing a patient in the ICU and I'm gonna bill critical care time, I'll talk about why they're critically ill. Mm-hmm. But if it's a floor patient, I'll just list out on my assessment and plan. I'll just put all the problems. Okay. So you know, I let's say the nephrostomy tube, uh, it may be, you know, acute polynephritis or obstructive uropathy. Mm-hmm. You know, ne- nephrostomy tube in place. Then I'll have a category for sepsis. I'll have another line for nephrostomy tube management, and then antibiotic management. I'll just say per primary. So those are five different problem points to kind of say the same thing. Gotcha. Okay. And then so once once you've gotten done with risk, uh, the amount of data reviewed, and the um, number of diagnoses, that takes you down to like your your final result for the complexity of medical decision making, and that can fall into four categories. Like we said, uh, will, you, will you say those four categories for us? Because I'm not sure I remember them. Straightforward, low complexity, moderate complexity, and high complexity. Right. And really, it's the difference between moderate complexity and high complexity. Okay. In my opinion. Yes. I think that's where most of us live. And so in terms of like, why is like the medical decision making component so important? Because there's other components of billing, but why why is this the component? Like, why would you make your case that this is the most important component? Because this is what drives the other two. Because this is the only thing that you can't change. So if it's a moderate complexity clinical encounter, then you can select your code. And then based on whatever code you select, like a hospital day one code, then you would just document your HPI and physical to mirror the requirements for that code. Okay. Um, and, and that's one of like the, the, the concepts that I wanted to come through for like the audience and that like once you have your medical decision-making, whether you're doing moderate or high, um, like in terms of the medical decision-making, then you just, from there, you just build your note to meet those criteria, right? Correct. Okay. You know, I'm pretty good with the computer. I think most people in our generation are. So I, I typically just do comprehensive uh, HPI and exam on everybody. Mm-hmm. And then that way it kicks it back to the billers to figure out if it's a moderate complexity case or high complexity case. And I'd be, I, I was surprised at how many of my encounters got kicked up to a higher level code from the billers on the back end. I would say about 30 to 35% of my stuff gets upbilled based on my documentation. Okay. So you just make sure everything's documented and then the billers and coders will upgrade it on the back end. That's pretty neat. Yes. Okay. Um, and not that I want you to spend too much time because I think people will be able to like borrow your notes, but like, what do you do in terms of documenting for history and physical exam that that are just kind of easy things to do, but also make sure that like you have a very complete, well-rounded, and as you said, comprehensive note. So everything is templated in an epic. Everybody knows that a lot of that stuff will auto-populate. And then to keep things simple on the HPI, for example, if I have to have a comprehensive HPI, that means I need greater than four uh, description terms. So those are location, quality, severity, duration, timing, context, modifying factors and associated signs and symptoms. So I just use very normal language and use their terms. 
So if I have a patient who has cholate cystitis, for example, I'll say location of pain, right upper quadrant, severity is nine out of 10, duration is three days, timing started okay. two days ago, you know? And so that way the billers who most just graduated high school, sure, sure. not to dog them, but can go back in your note and find what they need to know. So yeah. that's the most simple way I've found to do these. Okay. So you basically try and give a roadmap and like some, uh, some very straightforward language, language that they're familiar with to help them mine your procedure, or I'm sorry, your uh, HMP notes. Yes. And so yeah. like, if you look at history, the three components of history are HPI, which the highest level is comprehensive. And you only need four elements of the HPI, which is very easy to do. Sure. Review of systems, a complete review of systems is 10 things. And then past medical, family, social history, you have to hit two to nine components in each of those areas, but almost all Epic templates will auto-populate all of this stuff. If they've ever been to the ER or seen anybody, by the time an IR sees them, somebody else has put this stuff in the system. I, I would, I would concur with that. Um, let me ask you this about the review, review of systems. And this is a little bit in the weeds. Like, do you do a review of systems for your patients? Like what, what does the review of systems look like? It depends on the patient. If I'm seeing an outpatient consult for like a cryoablation, sure. I'll, I'll do a very extensive review of systems. If I'm seeing somebody in the hospital, it's a very truncated review of systems. And I may even say on my review of systems, review of systems, review of systems limited due to patient's status and current medical condition. Or I'll okay. just say, you know, review of systems. Otherwise, we're not pertinent to this problem. Okay. And for some, some people who are maybe asking this question, what about like uh, HMP components or sorry, history components where your patient, where you're actually doing a lot of decision-making and you're, you're reviewing a lot of things, but your patient is not contributing to any of the history. Like, you know, they're intubated. Like, how do you, how do you pull anything? Go ahead. So I can provide, I'll provide a phrase that we've approved, but basically it's just we use it for stroke patients and independent mm -hmm. patients that says right. HPI not obtainable from patient due to X, Y, and Z, but I can provide that. It's one of my uh, templated statements that I use sure. in those situations. Okay. So it's still okay to have a lot of this stuff in there, even though you may gather it from, you know, other points of the chart, family members or something like that. Right. Correct. And then the physical exam, I assume that like you're, you're doing like pretty extensive physical exams and probably in the, in the parlance of, of, you know, the E&M coding, uh, comprehensive physical exams. So what does that look like on Epic or, or whatever? Um, yeah, you're using Epic. What is, what does that look like? So it auto populates eight organ systems, which is a comprehensive exam. Gotcha. And then I just go through those and a couple free points that you get. If you have three vital signs in your note, that's a considered a constitutional organ system. So then you only have seven things to grab. Mm -hmm. So I'll grab eyes, um, skin, lungs, abdomen, chest, extremities. And then typically I'll say if they have, I'll, I'll find something else to go over. I don't typically, things I leave out, I don't do MSK, I don't do GU, I don't do heme lymph. And uh, I'll do a neuro exam and I, I, I keep it pretty simple. Neuro, grossly normal. Uh, right. Respiratory, no respiratory distress. Right, okay. So there uh, are shortcuts. Yeah, I think like some people unfamiliar with this arena are thinking that 
maybe I have to start carrying around a stethoscope. That's like a little bit daunting for them to like be trying to pick up heart murmurs. But there's a lot you get when you walk into the room and assess the patient that you can you can document, especially I think Epic makes this especially easy. And, and you kind of laid it out like, you know, one of your assessments might be like the eye exam. And, you know, maybe it's like extra. I mean, I don't know what you say, but normal. Yeah. <laughs> Mouth moist. Right, right. Okay. So, neck and it, supple. <laughs> yeah, neck, I just say no JVD. Okay. So, and then also, this is a very important part. I had to really drive this home with some of my senior partners. If you look at an inpatient progress node, which is a very normal code for us to do, all you have to do is to do an expanded problem focus history. That's two body areas. So if you have three vital signs in your note, that's one. And then typically what I do on that, I'll have skin, drain side is clean, dry, and intact. And that's it. Boom. Physical exam done. Okay. So it's very quick. I don't, when I do my rounds, I will talk with the patients and go over sort of expected outcomes and, and a bunch of different things. But I'm not doing five-minute physical exams. It's literally 10-second exams. Yeah, like the, the exams happen basically when you walk in the room and then and you spend all the meaningful time with the patient doing a lot of counseling, which maybe isn't reimbursed well. So, I mean, I, I think that most people who do this kind of get it. Like it's kind of playing the game in a way to make it optimized for your scenario. Um, but I think that's a lot of what IR does. Like, you know, we have meaningful encounters in patients. We don't want to spend our time like doing, you know, some random MSK or neuro exam when it's just not pertinent to us. Now I want to kind of talk about some of the inpatient codes that, and it, we're getting a little bit into a numbers game. And so if people aren't following us, we, we can, you know, um, just reference the YouTube video, but like, what are like the most common codes that you use? Because you mentioned that you're doing a lot of inpatient billing. What are the most common codes that like fall into like uh, your billing and coding situation? It's the same codes over and over again. So yeah. admission HMP or hospital day one codes, there are three levels. I typically bill level two. So if I see a patient, that's 99222. Okay. And somebody asks me to do something that's very straightforward, then I'll bill a 99222. And then every patient that I see is a 99232 for follow-up. So inpatient progress notes are 99232. That's probably at least 70% of my total billing. And okay. kind of a, a, a routine clinical scenario would be an abscess strain. So sure. uh, put an abscess strain in a patient, then I'm going to follow them, you know, follow drain outputs while they're in the hospital. I'm going to talk to the patient, let them know what I expect for follow-up. You know, I'm going to see you for an abscissogram in one to two weeks. I actually teach them how to flush their own drain. I, if they're of low income, which is not uncommon, I will provide them drain care supplies. So all of my patients who have a procedure by me go home with a sack of flushes. I can tell you, working with partners who sometimes maybe don't round on their patients, it's very common for a patient to call and say, oh, my tube's not draining. And then come to find out they haven't been flushing it for the past two weeks. Sure, sure. Um, so going back to the admission H and P code, which you said is like a very common code for you to drop, which, you know, for those listening, it was nine, nine, two, two, two. Um, is that a code that has to only happen on day one of their admission? Or it's like, you know, they, they've been in house for a while. They're an ICU patient. They're all of a sudden they need a cholecystostomy tube. Can that, can you use that code for their like midpoint of their, uh, hospital stay? Yes. 
hundred percent. So that's the first time that I see them in the hospital. Gotcha. gotcha. And 10 different providers that are of different specialties could build that same code on that patient. One of those providers will be earmarked as the admitting or attending provider, but it doesn't change reimbursement or any of that or, or documentation. Gotcha. Um, let me ask you this, this scenario, and it's a little bit nuanced, but say you see a patient for a cholecystostomy tube, you do the cholecystostomy tube. Now you're, you're kind of following up and then they become septic because of an obstructing stone or whatever. And then you get, uh, consulted for a nephrostomy tube. Um, or does that patient still fall into your progress note kind of thing, or do they fall back into like another admission H and P. I mean, I, I kind of know the answer to this, but I just wanted to hear what your opinion or how you treat that. That would still be in your progress note. Yeah. Okay. Because they're established patients. Exactly. So now they're an established patient and they're just kind of falling under your, your progress. Okay. Um, so I think like covering the inpatient is, is the easiest thing to do, but there are some scenarios that I think warrant some specific attention. And I think we've tackled like the, like if you're just trying to get into E&M coding, like the two codes that you mentioned are the most important ones, like your progress note and then your admission one, right? Yes. And again, just to clarify, on the admission HMP, that's just hospital day one. So you don't have to be the admitting provider to build that code. And again, I think that's a, a big place of confusion for most IRs as far as, you know, they'll say, well, I can't build that because I'm not the admitting provider, but that's just a hospital day one code. Well, but even if it's not hospital day one, can you build that code? Yes, that's, it's, it's your hospital day one. So patients okay, can be at gotcha. hospital day 32, but you know, it's hospital day one and then everything else is subsequent day. Okay, gotcha. So it's just the, the first day you're coming onto the scene. And then another thing that we're probably about to get into is the inpatient consult codes. So 99251 through 99255. Yes. And the most common codes that an IR will we'll look at in that category is 99253, which is a level three or 99254, which is a level four. So typically on those, there are, there are unique situations where I will build those. If I get consulted and I go up and I see a patient and we talk for 50 or 60 minutes and we talk about doing the procedure or not doing the procedure, then I will build that as a consult and I will document in my note you know, we consulted, here are the, all the treatment options. Patient elects to go with an IR procedure. Now, if they call me for a cholecystostomy tube and a non-operative candidate that's septic, in my opinion, that's not really a consult because there's no other options besides death. So <laughs> I always tell people that that's the fourth option. Sure. So then I would just bill that as a 99222. So work RV use for a 99222, which is a level two, Hospital day one code. Right. Or 2.61. All right. Le for a level three consult, it's 2.27. For a level four consult, it's 3.29. So oftentimes I'm billing 99222 just because it's easier. Trying to figure out if something's a consult or not can be complex. But in my, my thoughts on the whole deal are is if you try to talk the patient out of doing the procedure, then that's kind of a consult. Okay. Otherwise, you know, if it's obvious that you're going to do the procedure, there's not really a consult. I see. So that's kind of your, your gut check is whether or not like the procedure is actually in the air or not. So, like so kyphoplasty, for example. Yes. Okay. I, I always try to talk though. I mean, I, I do a lot of kyphoplasty. I think it's a great procedure, 
But sometimes when I see the patients in the hospital, I'll play devil's advocate and talk about just conservative therapy. And then I let them guide me to say, no, I want, I want the intervention. And so that would be an example of somebody I would consult on because conservative therapy in the setting of a compression fracture is a viable option. It was my understanding that inpatient consult codes were a little bit more difficult to get reimbursed for. Like, I didn't think Medicare actually reimbursed for this consult code. I thought like it was a situation where you kind of have to know where your payer is, which to me adds another layer of complexity to it. But uh, I'll let you speak to it. Again, you're absolutely right. Medicare does not want to pay for these. So when I document my stuff, the billers know that if my, my level four inpatient consult gets kicked back, then it just goes back to a 99222. Okay. So that's, that's the trick. That's always your fallback if they say no. Okay. Gotcha. Um, and I think that's, that's probably like sophomore level billing and coding, but I, you know, felt like we should throw it out there. It's getting um, up there. Yeah, that is right. Right. So Ryan, there were some specific clinical scenarios that I wanted to ask you about. And that was does your billing and coding change depending on where the patient is? Like, I think there's some specific bills, uh, billing and coding options for patients who are in the emergency room in the ICU setting. And not that we have to get into the actual like numbers on that, but we just talk a little bit like maybe someone who's like starting to want to push their practice into the next level as far as capturing some um, codes that are a little bit more on the margins, like in those yeah. scenarios. So the ER has its own set of codes. It's five different codes, uses all the same data points that we've been talking about. There's no time component. And if I see a patient in the ER, like let's say somebody's G-tube falls out, I'm on call and I don't want to mess with taking them down to the IR lab. So I'll go see that patient in the ER. I'll swap out the tube at bedside, get a radiograph and then patient goes home. Mm -hmm. Patient never gets admitted. So in that case, I would have to build an ER code. Okay. And then uh, otherwise, if a patient's in the ER, I evaluate them in the ER and they get admitted to the ICU, then I can bill ICU codes. If they get admitted to the floor, then I'd obviously build the other codes. Okay. So there's some specific codes for patients who are in the ER and the care is taking place in the ER. And there's some specific codes for your ICU patients. Correct. Okay. And the ICU patients, the critical care, you'll see in all your intensivist notes, they say X amount of time spent providing mm -hmm. critical care time. So if I have a patient, again, I keep circling back to these cholecystostomy tubes or neph tubes, but yeah. it seems like those are all the easiest patients. Yeah. <laughs> Another good example is a stroke patient. So if I have okay. a stroke patient, let's say they got TPA and they're shipped in, I go evaluate them, decide they're not a uh, EVT candidate, but they have to go to the neuro ICU for critical care support because they got TPA. That's a patient where I could bill critical care time. And I just document that in my note. Patient's critically ill. They have a large vessel occlusion, you know, evaluated for EBT candidacy, wanted to see if they could protect their airway for moderate sedation versus general anesthesia, et cetera. And just document that stuff in, in your notes. And again, I've had no problems when I document correctly getting this stuff uh, through the billers and just get, getting it approved. Okay, great. Um, all right, so one of the things I wanted to switch gears and talk about are that these things, the, it feels like this is always a moving target. Um, there were some changes for 2021. And can you just kind of give us like uh, the, you know, 30,000 foot view of like what changed for 2021 in terms of E&M uh, billing and coding? Yeah, so the 2021 changes, 
it's a it's about the most excitement that these things have had <laughs> since 1997. Okay. Again, this stuff has been in effect since 1995, 1997, and 1995. I was nine years old. Since then, we've had no changes whatsoever. So January 1st, 2021, the new changes took place. And I think that we can extrapolate these changes will eventually apply to inpatient work. Right now, the new changes only apply to outpatient work. So outpatient where you see a new patient for the first time and then outpatient where you see a follow-up patient. Okay. And just to kind of briefly go over what they did. So if you're going to see a new office patient, there used to be five codes, 9920, one through five. Okay. Level one, two, three, four, five. If you look at CMS data, nobody builds a level one office note. So they just deleted that code. Okay. And then they made it to where the codes are either based on medical decision-making or time as the driving factor. And the medical decision-making chart got tweaked a little bit. And then the time component got changed a significant amount. Let me grab this chart real quick. Sure. So the old coding based on time, again, I don't, I don't, I think we should talk about this briefly, but I don't typically code based on time. I will code based on time if I end up in some 70 minute meeting with a family about de-escalation of care. Right. Yeah. Or I'm just using the time to capture the work I did. Okay. So the old coding based on time, you had to spend the entire time face-to-face with the patient over half the time had to be devoted to counseling and or coordination of care. And then you had to document the time spent and the nature of counseling and coordination of care. That's the old stuff. Okay. The new changes, um, I think they've done a pretty good job on revamping this to where it's friendly for the physician. Right. It's more reflective of, of people's practices now. So the new coding based on time can include face-to-face time, can also include non-face-to-face time before and after the visit on the date of the encounter. And there are no requirements regarding counseling and our coordination of care. So basically any time spent preparing to see the patient, seeing the patient or, or, you know, working on the note after can qualify. And it really makes things a whole lot easier. And then I think with these new outpatient time-based billing criteria, it's going to make it to where time-based billing is a lot more feasible for IR physicians out there because Component-based billing is complex, like we've just been talking about. Sure. There are, there are a, lot of, a lot of lingo and other things that can, can be confusing to somebody starting out. Well, I, I guess like that was the whole reason I wanted to have you on is that I, I feel like on the surface like this, it feels like billing coding is like you're constantly going to get trapped. And if you don't have the right thing, it's very tough. But one of the things I hope that comes across in, in this discussion is that a lot of the stuff is, it's like you're already doing it. You just have to go like, you know, the extra small effort to make sure that your documentation is tight because it's it's work that interventionalists, I think that we're all doing. Like, I think a lot of us are going to see our patients. We're having these conversations with patients and family. We're spending the time with them. We're doing our assessments. And then I think a lot of our code, I think, I think a lot of our um, uh, documentation it's almost all there. And I think like these electronic medical records are, are making it to where it's like super easy to just capture a couple of extra data points to where, you know, we're, we're hitting all the markers that we can to, to capture appropriate codes. One more thing I, I, I forgot to mention about the 2021 E&M guidelines. Sure. 
the history and exam are thrown out. So you can do whatever history and exam you feel is medically appropriate for the patient. Right. So all this stuff we were talking about before, the physical exam and the history needs to hit all the points based on whatever note you're coding for. With the new 2021 outpatient E&M guidelines, it's either based on medical decision-making or time. So it's going to simplify everything. And one thing I would recommend for at least the young IRs, when I started my practice or joined the practice I'm in now, typically uh, it wasn't standard for us. You know, we would go see some of our patients, but not all of our patients. Mm-hmm. So my first year rounding on patients, a lot of the physicians were like, you know, your IR, what are you doing on rounds when I would round mm-hmm. in the different ICUs? And then after about six months, it sort of got to be where that was expected. And then, you know, 12 months, a lot of the guys that I would see up in the ICU would then call me with problems directly just because we were constantly seeing each other rounding. And so it, it, for me, starting out in the IR practice, it, it made it to where I was approachable to other providers and it made us more open for referrals, I think, moving forward to sort of grow the practice. No, I think it's a positive feedback loop. Um, you get, I mean, one of the things that we haven't talked about is like, you know, just just doing this work of, of going up and seeing patients, like just increases your visibility, you know, a thousand fold. Um, I think like gone to the days are, are people who just sit back and you just, you know, waiting for a consult to come through or waiting someone to call you with a case. Like, I think it's invaluable, like building like that uh, bridging relationships and with like the referring docs. So no, no, I, I totally agree. And we have, five PAs in our practice or four PAs, we're adding a fifth and we do not have them do E&M work. They just do parasthoras, tunnel dialysis catheters, and a few other things. And I think it's better for the IR providers to perform the E&M work themselves than to have a mid-level, uh, just because it improves your, like we were talking about, improves your visibility. And then it gets you face-to-face time with the, the patient. Sure. So, and it, you know, to, to sort of circle back on, this is one of the sticking points. So why we left our diagnostic group was we weren't getting clinical time. We wanted to ha- start a clinic. We wanted time for rounds and uh, the diagnostic group just wasn't in line with what our objectives were. And, you know, we all kind of sat down and said, we've got to figure out how we want to design this practice. And a lot of us get energy from seeing patients, seeing providers on rounds, that's a lot of positive feedback. And then you go hang out with your diagnostic colleagues and it's just a lot of negativity. Sure. And it, and it reminded me of like a dysfunctional high school relationship where you got that crazy girlfriend that's still in your shirt and then yelling at you all the time. So, you know, I can tell you after doing 100% IR practice, doing E&M aggressively for two years, I can't imagine practicing any other way. I think the SAR talks really big about we need to do clinical medicine, but we don't have the resources for a lot of interventional radiologists to jump in because we are not taught this. Every other specialty like urology, what my twin brother does, Mm -hmm. they they go over this stuff all the time. So yeah, so talk about like, how did you get into this and like, what were some of the resources that you use? Because I, I know one of the things that SIR has is there's uh, the SIR toolkit, which I'll, I'll link to. I've, I've looked over that a couple of times, but like, what did you use? Did you borrow an experience from other people or, or did you have any uh, resources that we can link to? So the, the toolkit is basically just a, the kind of carbon copy 
<laughs> the, st- the stuff the government puts out. So it's sure. like, so that's the first thing I did. I looked at the toolkit and I was like, well, this isn't very good. And then I call my, I call my brother and he's like, you're gonna have to go to a course. And then I was like, first year of practice, I was like, I don't have any vacation. So I, uh, e- emuniversity.com yeah. is by far the best resource. It's an online, uh, you have to pay for membership, but that's what I recommend for any of this stuff. If you, you know, you may be the guy in your group that's going to focus on this aspect of the practice, and that would be the best place to get sort of expert level uh, education accounts for CME. And it's only a couple hundred bucks. So, okay. Um, and also understand that you have like a, a handbook that you made for your, your group. Yes. I have a handbook that we'll, we'll provide copies of. I don't know how we get it out there, but we'll get it out there, man. We'll get it out there. Don't all worry. My, all of my stuff is free. You can do whatever you want with it. Um, this is a little, it's a handbook that we just put in the, uh, I don't wear a white coat. I just wear a vest, but I, it fits in the pocket of your vest. Okay. And it's a good resource to kind of reference. All right. We'll do that. Um, and then also, uh, guys, we'll also link to your YouTube video, which, uh, you know, personally, uh, I, I got a lot of value from, um, clearly, uh, you put a lot of work into it. And so I hope people go and check it out. Uh, was it tough to make? Yeah. I mean, I'm, you know, as you can tell, probably not the best podcast speaker, but, uh, I, uh, it, it just took a lot of time. And so E&M work, uh, a lot of times it's like sex in that you got to do it a couple of times and then you figure stuff out. So you just gotta pull the, you just gotta pull the trigger and start doing it. And then once you start doing it, then you'll know what questions to ask. <laughs> so, I, uh, my partners will tell you when we first started doing this, I had multiple PowerPoints and they were horrible because I just had no idea what I was doing. Sure. And then after 12 months, I could really boil it down to these are the pertinent points. So I'm also going to try to get a 2021 update video out because again, I think that in a year or two, this 2021 update is going to apply to all inpatient work and it's going to really make it to where any IR will be able to build for this kind of stuff okay. and, and document appropriately. So, so the, the last, the last question, although like we could have easily ended on that note is at, like, if someone is asking for your opinion on a case, like say a surgeon comes down and wants to know if you can drain an abscess and you haven't seen the patient, it's kind of like a sidewalk consult situation where you're able to look at the pictures, like, you know, with the surgeon there and you know, you don't have a window. How do you handle that situation in terms of like, do you just ask them to put in the consult and you're like, look, put in the consult and I'll work everything out of the back end? Or is there something you do with, with those that either, you know, can go or can't go, uh, to your IR procedure? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So if I, it depends on my, to be honest with you, my day, like if I'm getting, if I'm getting slammed and I'm booked out till 9 PM, then I may not go see that patient. If I trust the surgeon which all the surgeons at my hospital I trust. But most of the time, especially if it's the weekend, like I feel like my consults really get ramped up on the weekends. I'll go see the patient. And then, you know, one simple thing I've done that sort of added to the practice and people love it, the snipping tool. Do you use that on your notes? Uh, no, I, I'm not familiar with it. Like, so you uh, go ahead. I, I just, I blow it up. So nice. I, I snip, like if I say there's no window, I'll snip the abscess. And I will, I will annotate colon yeah. abscess and I'll say, see, I, I can't stick a drain in that. And all my cases, like, it's funny. 
we do all these crazy cases, like we'll do crazy tips, but nobody cares. No. I had a patient that had horrible head and neck cancer and I recanalized their upper venous system and put kissing stents down to the SVC. So really not that complex of a procedure, but I put notes on it and people flipped out. Like all the <laughs> ICU intensivists were like, oh, that's amazing. The nurses were like pumped. And uh, so I, I realized then you just put pictures up there and people just love it. So and that's, that's, that's such uh, a pro move there. Um, and I think I will borrow that. Like, so all it is, is just using the snipping tool and then that's, that's how you import the picture in. Yeah. So when people that's ask, great. like yeah. on the findings tab, I just put pictures. That's awesome. That's awesome. Okay. Um, all right. Well, I think that wraps it up. Um, any, any final thoughts about E&M um, or any, any final thoughts about billing and coding in general, Ryan? I think it's going to be a moving target. I think if you're, if you're not doing E&M, I think that you're not practicing to the full potential of an interventional radiologist. We, we know it's the right thing to do to go see our patients. We know it's the right thing to see them in consult, see them in clinic. Uh, so I would just say jump in and do it. And for all you guys in a diagnostic group where you're trying to justify an outpatient clinic, my advice is for six months, do inpatient E&M coding. There's no overhead associated with it. Mm -hmm. You get a new revenue source, then go to your group and say, hey, look how successful we've been on the inpatient side. Now give us some money on it for an outpatient clinic that we know is going to lose money. And then you may be more successful. Yeah. All right. I'm, also, I'm also one that's would say just do 100% IR, but I, I think I'm in the minority on that one. I, I'm not sure about that, but you know, like everyone's practice is, you know, for everyone, it's an individual thing. And certainly I, I think that there are people who are in relationships where like they work well with their diagnostic colleagues, you know, not every, not everything's like butting heads, although that's certainly what we hear about more. Um, and I, and I, I would say this, that I, I agree with you that I think that the, the moving forward, it's going to be a combination of everybody's picture, right? People who maybe do 50% IR, some that do 90%, and usually the market dictates that. So yeah, right. I'm not, I'm not trying to hate the diagnostic guys. No, 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 no hate towards the diagnostic guys. Um, all right. I think that about covers it to the audience. Thank you guys for listening. We covered a good topic today. If you heard us reference uh, Ryan's uh, video, we're going to link to that YouTube video in our show notes, and we're going to have links to a lot of other things. I don't have it all figured out right now, but we got some smart uh, team members that are going to make sure it's going to be available to you. So check out the show notes and uh, check things out on backtable.com. If you enjoyed the podcast and want to support the show, here are two easy ways. First, take one second, press the subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening on. This helps platforms like iTunes or Spotify know that you, our audience, value what we're doing and you're interested in getting our latest content as we're producing it. Second, if you're really getting a lot of value from these podcasts, please go to iTunes and leave us a short written review. This helps us in a lot of different ways. Plus, we love the feedback. That wraps things up. We'll see you next time on the Bank Table Podcast. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon, with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhirter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. 
Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.